Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Real everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. This is actually the stunt double of Andy Nelson. <laughs> 
sometimes I let him do the wide shots, and we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we are Sex Bomb. One, two, three, four. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. We got a blot spot. Andy, friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with his rebound on Kundun. Kundun felt like watching a documentary in history class. It was interesting information, but didn't exactly entertain me. I wonder if it might have made the story more intriguing when the Dalai Lama is questioning himself if they hadn't made it so blatantly clear that he was Kundun from the beginning. A fine film, but not one for me. Your rank 220, my rank 227. I assume you're going to tell him that he also needs to go put this on his calendar to watch in five years. Yeah, I I am. I'm going to be calling you both. <laughs> Five years. Five years. It's that time. <laughs> it's time, Andy. Let's do trailers. My trailer, Pete, in case you in case you didn't know this, <laughs> there's this little distribution company called A24. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I think, how have I heard them? Oh, yes. You have an unnatural obsession with everything they do? Pretty much. That's them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, so... If I'm struggling trying to find a trailer, I'm like, hey, I'll see what A24 has out there. (laughs) And so I'm going with the trailer for their film, Woodshock, which is going to be uh, uh, coming out later in the year. Woodshock is a film, uh, it looks like it's written and directed by Kate and Laura Molivi. They are the founders of Rodart, I think it's a, a fashion line. And they are the founders of that. And um, they, I guess somehow because of what they do there, they got involved in the costume design for Black Swan, uh, the uh, fantastic uh, ballet film. And uh, then somehow they, they, it turned into an opportunity for them to write and direct their own feature film, which is Woodshock. It is coming out uh, later this year, like I said. The official synopsis reads, Kirsten Dunst stars as Teresa, a haunted young woman spiraling in the wake of profound loss, torn between her fractured emotional state and the reality-altering effects of a potent cannabinoid drug. Immersive, spellbinding, and sublime, Woodshock transcends genre to become a singularly thrilling cinematic experience that marks the arrival of the Malavi siblings as a major new voice in film. I just, I, I don't really know if I get much of the story from here. I mean, I do get a sense that Kirsten Dunst's character really is going through this profound loss. It looks like there's like, a, I don't know if it's an assisted suicide or her mom is going through something and, uh, you know, she's giving her mom this, uh, this drug and then she starts taking it. And then it is a trippy, trippy trailer. And that's really what you get for most of it is her balance between like reality and uh, this, uh, you know, world altering uh, place that she's going to with this drug. And it's, it's, it's an interesting story. I don't know if it's something that I will, I would really um, love, but at the same time, I love the artfulness of the trailer. And I love that it looks like they're really using kind of old techniques of like uh, double exposure images and the way that they are kind of cutting it together. It's incredibly beautiful. And it really, really drew me in. Um, so like I said, I don't know if I'll love it, but it's certainly something that I want to check out. What'd you think? Well, I, uh, I, the, the trailer is beautiful nonsense. It does. <laughs> it's, it's nonsense, but you're right. I mean, it's beautiful. And I, I think it is really a, uh, um, it, it harkens back to, 
uh, techniques, as you say, that we don't see very often anymore. Uh, however they achieved them, if they faked them digitally or if they did them in camera and shot on film, I don't know, but it was uh, it, it was lovely um, to watch, uh, and it makes zero sense. Uh, it, but as we are sometimes want to do, I want to uh, bookend your beautiful rendition of the synopsis, the official synopsis, <laughs> with the IMDb synopsis. Uh, because I think it, it adds an extra layer uh, as we peel back this onion. Here you go. A woman falls deeper into paranoia after taking a deadly drug. And that's the end of that. Oh, uh, Amazon. I, oh, I mean, uh, <laughs> I want to attribute it to Amazon. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so, anyway, that's terrible. The thing that actually has me most curious, it has nothing to do with the filmmaking, nothing to do with the, uh, uh, with the story, because... Uh, you know, as I've said, nonsense. This stars or, or has in the cast beyond Kirsten Dunst both Lorelai Linklater and Jack Kilmer. So we've got uh, 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 Linklater's daughter and Val Kilmer's son uh, in the same film, right next to each other, and that makes me curious. I mean, I know we've seen them in a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, particularly Jack Kilmer. He was just in what was he just in the Nice Guys and. And uh, he was in Stanford Prison Experiment, and so he's got some things going on. But it, it's just, I like seeing children, second-generation people all in the same movie. That makes me happy. That's pretty cool. I yeah. definitely uh, want to see them doing some more stuff, too. Uh, yeah. looks like this only has a release date right now in the U.S., and that is September 15th. So uh, uh, end of summer, we'll be checking this one out. Uh, my trailer, Andy, is To the Bone. To the Bone is a Netflix production, and it stars Keanu Reeves, Lily Collins, Carrie Preston. It is written and directed by Marty Noxon. Now, do you know Marty Noxon? Nope. That disappoints me, Andy. That disappoints <laughs> me greatly. Uh, Marty Noxon has been in my life as a creator and producer and writer and director of film and television, or of television, uh, for 25 years. She was a major uh, uh, contributor to the Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, and Angel universes. She's been on since then quite a bit. She's a consulting producer all up and down Glee. Uh, she's she's an incredible uh, uh, talent. You hear her, you know, I've seen her speak a couple of times, and she's just super, super smart. And this is her first feature that she has written and directed. Uh, it is the story uh, of Lily Collins dealing with anorexia. Uh, well, not Lily Collins. Actually, Lily Collins plays the character of Ellen, who is living with anorexia and goes into treatment, and her doctor is Keanu Reeves, and it is the story for her uh, of her trying to find her life again. Uh, it, it Sure, sure, it could become maudlinly sentimental, I'm okay with that. I feel like I know what I'm getting. Marty Noxon has earned enough credibility in my book that I'm going to see this uh, no matter what. I think it's. Uh, I think it looks like it could be a really touching, nice film. What do you think? You look at Lily Collins in something like Mirror, Mirror. Not that you want to watch that movie, mm -hmm. uh, but you look at her in that film, and then you look at her in this film, and it's horrifying. Uh, and I'm sure yeah. there's there's some makeup involved in making her look so anorexic and but the uh, just frightfully thin. But it's just it's really scary to see her. I mean, it's it's like um, uh, Christian Bale when he was in uh, 
the um, machinist, something where an actor goes to this extreme level to make themselves make their body fit the role. And it's really kind of frightening. She really just is it's horrifying to look at her in this. And it's really impressive that she went to these lengths uh, to play this role. Um, that alone really piques my curiosity. And um, I mean, it's it's an interesting cast and it looks like it's it's not a unique story, but it looks like the characters and kind of what they're doing with it are what would draw me in. And it uh, certainly piqued my curiosity. The star rating so far on IMDb uh, is out of 183 uh, views so far is 8.3 out of 10. Now I don't usually give a whole lot of credit to, to that star rating thing unless it's super, super low. And I have certainly recommended trailers off of movies where they the star rating is super, super low, and they have, true to form, been terrible movies. But this does give me hope that, uh, in, in fact, there's a lot um, standing behind this movie, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, it's, uh, it opened, it premiered at Sundance in January. It releases for all in just a couple of weeks, July 14th, uh, on Netflix. And uh, the only other opening we have is Netherlands, August 18th. Uh, I guess that's a, a some sort of a theatrical release. I don't know. It doesn't say internet there, so um, who knows? But that's all I've got. Uh, be on the lookout for To The Bone. Excellent. You're right. I should send out a mass text about this. Hey, what's up? I'll leave you alone forever now. You know this one girl with hair like this? Yes, that's Ramona Flowers. She's out of your league. You know her? Tell me now. She just moved here. Got a job at Amazon. I have to order something really cool. Scott, are you waiting for the package you just ordered? Maybe. Scott Pilgrim? Hi, I was thinking about asking you out, but then I realized how stupid that would be. That's okay, you should just sign for this, all right? So do you want to go out sometime? I say yes, we sign for your damn package. So yeah, eight o'clock? Come to this Battle of the Bands thing. You have a band? Yeah, we're terrible. I'm Ramona's first evil ex-boyfriend. What? Wait, we're fighting over Ramona? Didn't you get my email explaining the situation? I skimmed it. Mm Mm-mm. What was that all about? If we're gonna date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. So what you're saying is we are dating? I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure. Prepare to feel the wrath of the League of Evil Exes. Ramona dated twins. At the same time. If you want something bad, you have to fight for it. Step up your game, Scott. Combo! Break out the L word. Lesbian? The other L word. Lesbians? Scott Pilgrim versus the world, Andy. Directed by Edgar Wright. Written by Michael Bacall. Edgar Wright. And uh, the talented comic uh, artist behind the original graphic novels, Brian Lee O'Malley. Uh, this uh, film stars Michael Sarah, Allison Pill, Mark Weber, Johnny Simmons, Ellen Wong, Kieran Culkin, Anna Kendrick, Aubrey Plaza, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, and, uh, and, and more we will talk about. It is uh, the story of Dear uh, Scott uh, dating a high school girl. And then a uh, stunning anime girl. 
roller skater Amazon <laughs> delivery girl, uh, and he has to fight her evil exes before they can date. And this film, uh, we already talked to the good Nick Langdon, didn't we? That's right. We spoke with him uh, just a little bit ago, and uh, we're going to jump to that conversation right now to figure out why he picked this and why he loves it so much. From down under, hey there, Nick. How you doing? Hey, hey. Thanks for having me on the show. Nick Langdon, you have been a constant contributor and a, a dear friend of the show and a great conversant uh, participant in our Slack channel. We are so glad that you are uh, here doing uh, picking the listener's choice movie for us this round. This is it's about time, in other words. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, always nice to have people I can blather on with uh, about nerdy obsessions like movies. So uh, it's, it's it's been a great pleasure. And uh, you picked a great one for us to chat about uh, this time. It is Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is really exciting because we've already talked about a number of, uh, in fact, all of Edgar Wright's films. As you probably know, I did actually stumble across the next reel by Googling Hot Fuzz podcast because I was just looking to see if there was any intelligent conversation out there in the universe about the oeuvre of Edgar Wright. And uh, that's how I found your podcast. So it's sort of appropriate that we are talking about uh, Scott Pilgrim. Oh, that's fantastic. What is it about uh, Edgar Wright that attracts you uh, to him as a filmmaker and to the to his films? Um, a lot of things, I suppose. Obviously, the first thing is that they're very funny. And uh, a lot of mainstream comedies, especially the Hollywood, the Judd Apatow, Will Ferrell movies, I don't find funny. I don't like sort of pratfalls yelling and swearing, which is sort of the mainstream of comedy. I like quirky character-based comedies as well. So obviously that's an appeal with Edgar Wright. There's also a great rewatchability to his films. Um, I mean, Scott Pilgrim is one of the densest films with all the numerology and counting stuff and all the, the visual effects that fill the screen. All the jokes that you might not pick up on until you watch it for the sixth or seventh time, he's editing, his scene transitions. There's so much to dig into. And he's also such a film fan too. Like a lot of directors, if you're in the movie business, you're obviously like a fan, but he is like an obsessive and he always put in these references to older movies and the more films that you watch, the more things that you pick up in his film. So he's like a sort of cinephile director, but one who doesn't take himself particularly seriously. His films are always light and entertaining, even though they also have deeper messages as well. So he's just an all-round great filmmaker. And visually, I think he's one of the most exciting directors working at the moment. We are just talking about Baby Driver. There was like the first shot of the trailer was like a close-up of a salt shaker being slid across a diner table. And you're like, that's an Edgar Wright shot. You could tell it with straight away with one close-up of a condiment. Yeah, he's a very interesting uh, director. I love watching Edgar Wright's films. And Scott Pilgrim is kind of an interesting <laughs> one. Um, you know, it's it's based on a graphic novel. It wasn't something original that, uh, that he'd kind of come up with with uh, Simon Pegg, and and he co-wrote it with Michael Bacall, and uh, it's it's kind of a different beast. But at the same time, it still feels so much like something that he would do. And I, I I've never read the graphic novels; I'd only seen the film. Um, but watching the film, I'm like, man, it just it fits so perfectly with the the temperament and just the the style and and just everything that Edgar Wright puts into films. Have you read Pete? You know, I have not, and and I'm, I, you know, I, I. It's been several years since I've seen the movie too, and so now I'm, I'm thinking before we actually, before I watch the movie again, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick up some of these graphic novels because I, I feel like that's, uh, it, it's time if I'm going to get it, really get it, I want to get it, you know, with the, the full scope of the, of the canon. I assume you've, you have read the, the graphic novel. 
I did. I, I chased them up after I'd seen the film. And it, it's actually really funny. The first volume is basically the first 25 minutes of the movie. It, it pretty much it follows it beat for beat. And then after that, they have to compress it because the books take place over about a six-month period, whereas the movie is like two weeks and there's a whole heap of different more characters and uh, more backstory. So obviously you can go in a lot deeper into the into the books. But um, the first one is really interesting is it's essentially the first act. Although Scott Pilgrim First the World is interesting because it's not a three-act movie. It's like a video game movie where you've got seven levels and then the boss that you have to defeat twice at the end. Um, but the first, if you want to call it the first act, it's very much like the first book. And I highly recommend it. If you like the, the humour of Scott Pilgrim, that was why everyone was saying, after the first book was published, <clears throat> oh, you and Edgar Wright, Brian Lee O'Malley, got to get together. You've got the same kind of visual style, the same sort of references and the same sort of skewed take on the world. And uh, that's how they ended up getting together. Something that that uh, Edgar Wright tends to do is he he finds really interesting characters that all feel unique and they all speak their own language. You know, they just, uh, I, I love how interesting all of the characters are in his films, uh, no matter how small their parts are. And I remember reading the screenplay for this and, and, and I don't know if they, I don't know how much they pulled from the graphic novels when they wrote the screenplay, but I was so impressed with uh, the way that these guys wrote the script and they introduced all the different characters from, from uh, sex, but bomb and how uh, they do, they were all each individually defined as a character by the type of coffee that they drank. It's such a fun way to to picture these characters, and it it sets them up so perfectly and so quickly that you know instantly who these characters are. It's it's just it's smart writing, it's smart storytelling, and it's quick storytelling. Edgar Wright is a real um, efficient filmmaker. He's able to tell his stories very quickly. There's actually a. What just you're absolutely right what you were saying there and there's a fantastic example when um, they have the first Battle of the Bands scene at the Rocket and there's an amazing scene where it cuts to sort of Ramona there and Scott's like, hey, you totally came and then we've got Knives turns up, Stacy is there, she introduces herself saying my brother is chronically enfeebled so then it introduces Stacy puts mentions Knives and Knives kisses Scott and then Ramona looks at Scott so we've got that relationship already established then there's Stacy introduces her boyfriend and she says hi to Ramona but then Wallace is there and then Wallace looks at Stacy's boyfriend setting up a plot point that will later come on where he's the sort of what's the what's the gay version of a lady killer <laughs> he's sort of his famous for stealing the boys so within like a few seconds and a few of these like camera moves that Edgar Wright does you've already established all of these characters as their own identities and the relationships between them in a very short amount of time one of the pieces that strikes me when I watch Edgar Wright's films and I think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Hot Fuzz is that Edgar Wright trusts the audience to keep up and that's one of the things that really is on display here uh, you know that kind of a sequence is rife for exposition in the hands of another filmmaker and uh, that he is able to dispense with a lot of the triviality of exposition and just get these relationships established through visual cues is a sign of great trust in a director and I, I, I it's one of the things that keeps me coming back to Edgar Wright's films and uh, but again you know you mentioned the the sort of I don't know, the, the baffled kind of uh, three-act structure here into seven levels, that also allows for some real discrete efficiency. When you compress each individual level, uh, it, it's, it, you can move more quickly up the stairs of the narrative to the, to the final boss battle, I think. And that's another, that's another thing I'm trying to put my finger on, on why that feels so much more efficient uh, than, um, you know, looking at the same Scott Pilgrim narrative over, you know, getting rid of those bookends. 
sense. Um, but I I really like it. The the last point just on casting. Oh my goodness, what a fantastic cast! Like talk about taking great people that I just adore and putting them all on this in the same movie. Yeah, it was. So. It seems like it was a launching pad for a lot of very successful careers. I mean, um, you had someone like uh, Chris Evans who'd been in. Uh, Fantastic Four, but he wasn't like a huge star. But then the next year after Scott Pilgrim, he's Captain America, and now he's one of the biggest stars in the world. And then you've got you've got uh, uh, Brie Larson, who's you know Academy Award winner and uh, this sort of thing. And uh, it was interesting watching a uh, Snowpiercer where you had that uh, uh, weird reunion with um, Alison Pill yeah. and uh, Chris. Oh Adams. yeah, right. She played school teacher, and uh, yeah, a lot of other people who have gone on to to uh, really famous careers all here. Yeah, I mean, Anna Kendrick, who had already done, you know, uh, Up in the Air, obviously, but the uh, also the the oh, the vampire movies, Twilight, right? She'd already done two <laughs> Twilight movies, but she wasn't really cool until uh, <laughs> until she did Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> uh, it's really terrific uh, pick, and I'm very excited to watch it. Uh, you know, not just to be entertained. Uh, this was an absolutely fantastic selection. I was going to say one thing about Scott Pilgrim. The other thing about that that I really like, I one about the, the directing or the scene transitions or the how it tries like every kind of humor, which most movies don't. The only ones I could think of are like Annie Hall, which sort of tried a uh, visual comedy. That subtitle joke, it went into animation at one point, broke, breaking the fourth wall famously with Marshall McLuhan and all that sort of thing. Whereas that's what Scott Pilgrim does. You know, you've got pratfalls, you've got puns, you've got all the things going on on the screen, you've got great sound effects. He, he, he really, uh, you would have seen that t- uh, every frame of painting essay on Edgar Wright's humour. And he, he really goes above and beyond what other directors do. And the other thing about Scott Pilgrim, of course, is that it's a film that, I relate to on a level that's quite surprising because it is so silly and fantastical. But in 2004, five, when the first book came out, I was actually living in Canada at the time and I was failing at romance and spending a lot of time in crappy bars watching local bands of indifferent quality. So a lot of, and, you know, I grew up uh, playing like 8-bit video games and, like you know, watching the sort of cartoons. and So like Scott Pilgrim, who lives his life through pop culture, which is also what happens in uh, with the characters in space. They sort of, you know, their lives are a bunch of movie and TV references. So that um, thing of living in Canada at the time and going through some of the things Scott Pilgrim did all a bit with less awesome fighting, um, that I sort of really relate to that in a way I don't think a lot of people could because, again, like when you say Scott Pilgrim emotional, it is a very shallow film, it is a very silly film, but I do think it has some great messages in it about, you know, learning to, if you fall in love with someone, learning to accept all the baggage that comes along with being in a relationship, which is sort of personified by the evil exes. And also the idea when he gets killed and gets the one up and gets back, goes to go and do it again. We all think we've made some terrible mistakes in our lives or done things badly or hurt people. What if we could get another chance and go back? So I do think there's actually a surprising amount of depth for what is such a crazy lighthearted sort of explosion in a 13 year old's head of a movie. Which is something um, Wright is really good at. I mean, there was that fantastic moment at the end of Shaun of the Dead when when his mom, you know, dies. And it's just like there there are moments in his films that are just they really are really touching and poignant. And it's like he he finds a way to hit that honestly, which I think is a, a real testament to him as a filmmaker. Well, he said that about the Cornetto trilogy, that he said that all three of them were really relationship 
films disguised as genre movies. <clears throat> I mean, Shaun of the Dead is supposed to be a, a zombie movie, but it's really about being in your late 20s and learning to accept responsibility and there were things that are important in your life while battling the undead. And then Hot <laughs> Fuzz is about being in your 30s and balancing work and life. You've got the Butterman character, Nick Frost, who's a complete slob and takes his job for granted, but then Angel has no life and he's just purely focused on work. So they both sort of come to this nice middle point where they learn to live and they balance each other out a bit. Meanwhile, there's like a Tony Scott movie breaks out in rural uh, England. And then in The World's End, it's more about being in your 40s and having a midlife crisis. You've got the sort of the Gary King character who feels all his friends have become boring sellouts, whereas they think that he's a fool who refuses to grow up. And, and the film doesn't say that either of one of those perspectives is wrong, but they have sort of have to work out this midlife crisis while dealing with, you know, an alien invasion. And even again, Scott Pilgrim, it's about moving from like adolescent relationships to a grown-up relationships, whereas if you want to bring someone in your life, you've got to deal with all of the things that happened to them before you met them. Scott Pilgrim learns to, to stop to being a sort of silly little kid and grow up and take a bit of responsibility for it. Like, as he famously says in that Dream Desert sequence, oh. I think I learned something, which is a great one. <laughs> That's one of the things I like it so much uh, about it so much, though, the film that he uses. Like, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of easy to say, oh, that's kind of a lighthearted film. But he uses so many really interesting visual tricks and the graphics on screen that allow us to look at the same sort of sentimentality we've been looking at, the same sort of emotional depth we've been looking at, like you said, since Say Anything, since Pretty in Pink, like these are issues that we deal with in this at this age, but now we're dealing with it for a whole new audience and how do we actually portray it in a way that speaks now a, a new visual language? And I think that's what Scott Pilgrim is, is you know, exemplifies for me. Absolutely. And I was saying like the, the sorry, no, the, the thing about like comic book movies, I find them like so visually flat because they're just a standard movie. They don't use any of the visual language of comics. Well, and same with video game movies. They're just usually bad movies that have the characters from video games. But the thing of why they all fail is people don't what, play video games because they like the characters or the story. They like the games and the atmosphere you get. So if I can use a really pretentious word, there's a lot of intertextuality in Scott Pilgrim versus the world that he takes all the visual grammar and ideas from comic books with the panels and the uh, the divided up frame and all the effects going on, but also from video games, you know, enemies turn into coins and there's bosses and you get a one up and that sort of thing. And the whole structure of the movie where you go through the seven levels rather than the traditional three acts. So he's bought all of that from games and comics. That's why people are saying this is like the best video game movie and it's the best comic book movie because he understands and has a reverence to that material and incorporates it into the film. Uh, and that again is a, is something that you just don't get in other movies, and that's an other, other layer of depth to the movie. Hey, now, Ang Lee tried it in Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, yeah, like Kung Fu Hustle is another film, I, I thought. That's, and also, yeah. this, 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 you'll, you'll laugh at this one. Um, I was thinking for movies like Scott Pilgrim, uh, Hudson Hawk. Oh, dear. Remember in Hudson oh. Hawk, they tried oh. to do like that kind of reality. You found the person to talk about that work. one. Say hey hey no I you you were breaking up I know you I know what you started to say was they tried to do something brilliant and then it broke up when you said and they completely succeeded because that film is brilliant and then you stopped talking because there was nothing else to say Nick Langdon Listen I'll defend Hudson Hawk I think it works brilliantly about 20% of the time but the other times you kind of see what you got they were going for and go that's a cool idea and it totally didn't work but I'll defend Hudson Hawk. I think it was a much more entertaining film than I think it's being slightly reassessed. People are going, well, it, it, it's different. I'll give it that. They were trying something. 
That's what uh, you got to say that about filmmakers who at least try something, even if it didn't didn't work. At least they were trying to do something. So in in other movies, unlike Hudson Hawk, in which it did work. <laughs> shut up, Andy. You guys are t- I listen to you. Just a wholehearted, full breathed support of Hudson Hawk is the only thing appropriate to say on this movie. And you're killing me. If you're doing another. Um a guilty pleasure i would love to hear you talk about hudson hawk paper <laughs> i have tried so hard nick but andy so far I, is the i don't have any say in what you pick as your guilty pleasures Pete. no do you know what he does he takes guilty pleasure series off the schedule he says you know maybe this year let's not do a guilty pleasure <laughs> well, that did happen. Maniacal genius, Andy Nelson. Uh, Nick Langdon, uh, what, did, what did we miss? Anything else you want to... I feel like I started cutting you off earlier. Anything else you want to uh, talk about about this uh, film in particular before we let you get back to your day? Oh, um, I can talk about this film for hours and probably shouldn't. Uh, I, um, I was going to say, like another movie, the only other one I could think of was possibly... Um, have you seen Kung Fu Hustle, the Stephen Chow movie? Fantastic. Yeah, that sort of... Scott Pilgrim did a bit of that, like, sort of taking like cartoon levels of like action movie fighting. Um, but it's still awesome. I mean, uh, Scott Pilgrim got killed by the Expendables in 2010. But if you look at the Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Sylvester Stallone fight from the end of the Expendables, it's rubbish. Whereas the two biggest dweebs in Hollywood, oh. Michael Sarah and Jason oh. Schwartzman, fantastic fight. And yeah, that's just brilliant. The, Brad Allen, the, the, the Jackie Chan's uh, stunt guy who coordinated the fights in Scott Pilgrim and the dedication of the crew, which I think was great too. And also like a more uh, Asian films often have those multiple genres in one like i think probably one of the reasons scott pilgrim failed at the box office initially was it's like it's a comedy it's an action movie it's a romance it's a musical and i don't think people knew how to market it like who was the audience for this film whereas in like a other if you watch like john woo film he'll have a movie that's a you know story of of male friendship and a soppy love story and a crime drama and a violent action shootout and i think this there's more flexibility of genre uh, around the world, whereas Hollywood, it seems to go, if it's a comedy, it has to be a comedy. If it's an action movie, it has to be an action movie. It is a really fun movie, and uh, it's certainly something that we uh, we all three uh, love, and so uh, it's going to be fun to talk about uh, on the rest of the show here. Did you see it at the cinema? It's just interesting. Uh, no, I didn't. I missed did this not. one at the, at the theater. Yeah, it just, uh, I don't know. It kind of came and went. It was. Uh, it did not last long. Yeah, I did, I did see it in the cinema, but I'll have to say there was probably only about 20 other people in the cinema with me and my girlfriend at the time, so I sort of got the feeling it wasn't doing that well. Yeah, it quickly, they, yeah, it's screening second run everywhere. They have this Scott Pilgrim video show where they like shine green lasers during the vegan police scene and have garlic <laughs> bread. They've got like lyrics to the songs on the screen. So it's like a full like Rocky Horror kind of experience. And it's sort of it's oh, down. It's so funny. Now struggled with this before. <laughs> well, uh, we've, we are going to let you get back to your day in, in Melbourne, Melbourne. Melbourne, Melbourne, with just a just a couple of syllables, uh, but yeah. uh, again, Nick, uh, thank you so much for for joining us for picking such a terrific film and uh, for being a, a part of the community on Slack. We we love we love everything you bring to it. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me on the show. And your, uh, the uh, show's brought me a great deal of listening pleasure uh, over the last few years, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys uh, see on your latest uh, rewatch. Because again, there is just so much depth. You can you can really pick up on new things every every time you watch it, and and again, it's just such a it, every scene just breezes through. It's just so lighthearted to watch. So, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, 
crap on at great length about one of my favorite films. <laughs> it's well-deserved. I hope Andy does it justice. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fun. <laughs> Scott Pilgrim versus the World, Andy. I had not watched it at the time that we um, spoke to Nick Langdon. I have now obviously watched it again, and I have begun to consume the graphic novels. Oh my goodness. Uh, how did this film hit you on this watch? This is such an easy film to watch. It's so exciting and vibrant and energetic, and it really does feel like a comic book on screen. I know there have been other uh, filmmakers who have tried to kind of create that. I think Ang Lee did a fairly admirable job with Hulk, um, although I don't think anything compares to what Edgar Wright did here. I think he just had an intrinsic understanding of the story and the medium and and how to blend it all together to kind of create this this world. And also I think he's of the generation that really kind of clicked and grew up with those sorts of comic books and and the sorts of movies that you know fueled some comics and some of the comics that fueled some of the movies and and just it all kind of uh, created this perfect amalgamation of everything in his head um, and he was able to kind of bring it forth in in this film which I think is just a, an incredible delight to watch oh I think so too and you know what's amazing I I think the every time I watch this film I like it more. It had been several years since I've seen it, and I think I'd, I'd stopped giving it enough credit uh, over time. You know how that happens? Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah, and so watching it again, it just reminded me not just of— it, it, it feels like it could be light fare. You look at the, uh, you know, you look at the album or the uh, the cover art, you look at the poster, um, you, you look at sort of the kind of age that it's fitting into, uh, and, and it feels like light fare. Um, and— then you watch it and you realize it's also happens to be the showcase of some incredibly competent visual filmmaking uh, on behalf of Edgar Wright and team. This is a mechanically incredibly smart movie, and it is only bolstered by wonderful, funny performances uh, from um, the, the major cast members. It also is a film, I, I couldn't help shake it. Uh, I couldn't help but think of this film as a film with an incredible personality as a whole, right? Not just individual actors, individual characters having great personality or charisma on screen. This film feels like it has an identity all of its own. Like, it, it truly is greater than the sum of its parts. And I, I just found it really special uh, on on this viewing. Well, and looking back to the the previous Edgar Wright films that we've discussed on the show, his Cornetto trilogy, he has a real strong ability to do genre films, but infuse them with just strong emotional presence from his characters. And you have these moments in the other films, even like Shaun of the Dead, his zombie film, uh, some incredible moments that uh, have incredible um, just emotional weight, like when his mom gets a bit and turns. That was just like an incredibly uh, touching moment when Sean has to deal with that. Likewise here, as fun as the film is, you have some some moments in here where you can really kind of get a sense of Scott Pilgrim as this uh, this 
guy kind of struggling with the world of relationships in his early 20s. And it really kind of, you get that sense and you get that connection with these characters. That's something Wright does really well. And and he just, um, I think that he so far has found the right projects to tap into where he's able to do that. I, I get the sense, you know, looking at the, the relationship piece, your comment, and we talked a little bit about this with Nick, that this, um, uh, you know, they are, he's making a relationship film for a different generation uh, who's going to connect with it at a really visceral level uh, in a way that maybe you and I are incapable of connecting with. Uh, e- even as it's a terrific film, um, I, I'm frankly really interested in showing it to my teenager who has not seen it, uh, it because I, I wonder if, if she'll get an even different message or a, a you know a, a different substance from the film than I do. Yeah. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, do you do you want to talk anything about the the script, the traditional seven act structure? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you gotta love that. What are yeah. you gonna do with the seven battles that we have right. to do? Uh, I think they actually handle it really well over the course of it, adapting the six volume. Uh, series of no- graphic novels into this uh, this film, um, but I did want to. I, I mentioned um, in our uh, conversation just how enjoyable the script is to read, and just how strong it was right out of the gate. And again, I don't know how much of this was pulled from the graphic novel, but reading um, Michael Buck- Michael Bacall's script before um, before um, Edgar Wright came on to work on it. Just the very first page, I just want to read you the character descriptions as we meet the, um, the three members of Sex Bob-omb and their one superfan as they're all in Stephen Still's kitchen. And I think that it's so clever the way that it sells them. And it just, it makes for a fun read and that translates to how they're going to make the film. Stephen Stills, 25, shaggy hair, drinking coffee, parentheses, weak. Kim Pine, 22, cute, bitter, drinking coffee, parentheses, bitter. Young Neil, 17, superfan number one, drinking coffee, milky. Scott Pilgrim, 22, fresh-faced with an unruly yet adorable mop of hair, drinking coffee, parentheses, sugary. And just in that introduction to the, the uh, these four characters, I think it, it's so short and sweet to the point but also by kind of describing their the, the coffee addiction they all have and how they take their coffee, you start learning so much about these characters. And it's just like, this is a really clever way to tell this story. And I really admire when filmmakers and writers are able to integrate stuff like that into their scripts. I do too. And and the little the, the graphic treatments, the writing on film sort of treatments that we get uh, when you see those kinds of introductions – uh, and see them written to sort of exaggerate them on screen makes it just quirky and funny and uh, and and keeps the momentum up on the film. And the one that strikes me that when he meets in the club is uh, Como, uh, played by Nelson Franklin, and he says, "Hey, Como, you know everybody, right?" And the title that flashes for just a second is "Como Knows Everybody," uh, <laughs> and it's that that same sort of character description that we get. It, it's almost like they're opening the script for us, and I think that's a that's a, a really cute uh, um, a bit of visual trick. Not just visual tricks. They do amazing um, uh, audio tricks throughout the film, which are so uh, just dense. I mean, really, you you start really paying attention to the film and you're constantly catching little sound cues that they're adding to uh, signify, like if Scott, if if he thinks of something, you might hear a little sound or a ding or or a... um, 
uh, uh, like the sound of a, a register or whatever it is, you hear these little sounds that kind of trigger, oh, that was his reaction to thinking about this thing. Um, there's a like, or like the sound of a Mac powering on. Um, and it's, it's a really constant, um, uh, just a world and just kind of this, this, um, uh, this feeling that's enveloping you, this sense of, of all these sounds everywhere that are as integrated into the story as the on-screen visuals. I'm going to, I'm going to, this is a film vocabulary quiz. Are you ready? I hope. This is one I haven't heard quite literally in 25 years. Uh, what is the difference between diegetic sound and non-diegetic sound in a film? Diegetic sound is, fil- is sounds that, you, that are coming from something in the film. So like if a character puts a record on and plays a song and we hear that song, that song is a diegetic song. Whereas if you hear a song playing, but it's not necessarily coming from somewhere, that's non-diegetic. Non-diegetic. Andy, well done. Well done. You passed. And I am. I hope that somebody learned something because I had totally forgotten what diegetic sound and non-diegetic <laughs> sound was. And, and uh, just diegesis in, in, its, uh, in, in its own right. But this film is uh, a case example number one of clever use of diegetic and non-diegetic sound and sound that, uh, that transitions between uh, the two spaces, the two sort of oral spaces. And it's, uh, to your point, it is brilliant. It is brilliant in how he uses sound. Uh, and, and I'll move from your comment on sound to, to how he handles uh, visual movements on transition specifically. This is another film that just really highlights clever transitions. Uh, his, you know, that we get these um, uh, not just traditional shot, reverse shot, uh, transitions uh, between characters, but using those shot reverse shots to transform or to transcend space and time, where yeah. uh, he'll have one character say one thing close up on on him, and as we cut to the reverse shot, there suddenly the response to that to that uh, comment uh, in the script is suddenly in a different location. That is amazing. It is brain bending, and the more I invest in the comic. In the graphic novel, uh, the the better I I feel like I understand why some of those transitions exist. He has excised the the discussion of space time in uh, in the uh, graphic novel from the film largely. But my goodness, if some of these space space time transitions don't feel like a nod to um, you know at least an homage to that piece that has been uh, taken out of the film. Um, I, I thought it was just fantastic. Uh, he does it's, some. Go ahead. It's funny. It's funny that you say that because actually, when those happened, it it made me think of you specifically in our conversation with uh, Pablo Lorraine's "No" and how much <laughs> the same thing set you off. Yep, it did. It did. <laughs> and I was like, I wonder if Pete loves it here or if he also hates it here. So why is that? Why do I? Why do I uh, love it here? You know. I, I think that here in and I mean I, I really don't know because it's the same thing it's the same trick but I think I think in the context of this film the way that this cinematic world is being presented to us there are so many elements like this that are happening all through it where it becomes part of the language of the film and how the whole thing is working in something like no 
it doesn't really play those cinematic tricks throughout. It's just a conversation that happens to be um, happening. And in order to make it a little more visually interesting, they break it up over a number of different locations to just kind of, um, you know, make it not just one very staid scene. Um, and so I think in my head, that's why it works better in a film like this than it does in a film like No. That's exactly what I would have said. The world is built in such a way that it has set my expectation uh, to transcend the terrestrially believable. And No did not do that. Uh, this film has already has me thinking in sort of extra spatial um, terms. You know, when he goes into, he, he leaves the living room, goes into the bathroom, closes the door, uh, goes to the bathroom. We stay on him the whole time. And, and what I have to imagine is a set on some sort of a rotator. When he opens the bathroom door, now he's in, uh, in the, the um, uh, school building. Oh, it's not a rotating set. It's people <laughs> running really quietly and laying down all those new flats and uh, floors. Uh, I, I saw the behind-the-scenes um, blog uh, shot of them doing that. Of them doing and that shot? That's amazing. It's, like, it's crazy. But it's brilliant. It is brilliant. It, it's really brilliant. So, you know, I, I, I'm so glad you pointed that out because it's an example of, of this sort of uh, trick that really works for me here. And man, you're right. No, I, I was already on the, you know, I, I, I wasn't crazy about it. Um, at that. There was so much more about the movie that I, I really liked, but that that bugged me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Tony Zhu did a, a bit on, I don't know if you should put it in the show notes, he did an everybody, every frame of painting on uh, visual comedy expertise in Edgar Wright's films, and it talks about a lot of his work, but uh, the general theme is uh, so many comedies, like straight-up comedy movies today have given up the visual part you know if you if you oh, yeah. listen to the big uh, you know the biggest comedies you really can get the same you know whatever humor you were going to get out of them you could get the same humor because it's just people sitting around talking and and uh, he um, highlights some, the way Wright uses uh, transitions and uses visual tropes uh, in his films that give you humor that you cannot get by just listening to the script and and um, uh, a read of the script. And I thought it was a beautiful um, sort of treatment of Edgar Wright's uh, use of camera. So, uh, And I in a film like sure this that is so visual anyway, with the comic book look and the split screens, and you've got the the uh, exaggerated action scenes or the buildups to the action scenes where they're like running at each other and all of a sudden, you know, the, the space they're in is stretched and they're running and you've got the, the, just the look of everything going on behind them. And it's uh, it, the visual comedy is there too, but I think it's just visual period. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's so smart with his visual storytelling. It, it makes every frame of this just something that you could pause and just look at just kind of the magic that he's infused it with. I, I really enjoyed the dramatic lighting shots too. I just wanted to shout out when you know the sequences. Typically, I think Aubrey Plaza gets a couple of them right, where she's she's yelling at uh, yelling at him, and all the lights behind her go out, and she's just this fiery face in the camera. I thought that was really really cool. Yeah. Uh, let's talk first shot, last shot. Yeah, the first shot after our brilliant eight bit Universal logo, yeah. which is one of my favorite things. Um, and some on-screen text setting us up with, uh, within the context of this world. We tilt down, revealing that we have actually been looking at a gray sky over a snowy rooftop of a house in Toronto. And the last shot, Scott and Ramona go through the door, standing by itself, and they pass through it. The snow becomes flower petals, night becomes day, winter becomes spring. I 
like the uh, the the first and last shots um, of the film, but I don't see much in the way of a connection between them. It I don't see really any tie where we could look at the first and last shots and really get a sense of the story that will be unfolding between them. Well, only the you know seasons changing are, are obviously terribly symbolic, and to to start on the gray snowy rooftop and end in spring that sort of happens instantly. Uh, I, I think is it's it, to me it represents an awakening. It represents this is the ultimate transformation. He was not in a good place, Scott Pilgrim. He was dating a high school girl, uh, largely uh, inappropriately. Uh, even though they weren't doing anything inappropriate, he was just like he was lost to the point that he he didn't know how to grow up, uh, as evidenced by this relationship with the, by the girl in high school. And and um, so uh, you know to me it, it just signified the the passage of sort of emotional time. And I. I really liked that. I, you know, that's actually a good uh, good way to look at it. And I like I like what you came up with. I think well, that's pretty nice. Well, thank you, Andy. I think it's interesting that the original script, uh, Scott ends up with Knives Chow and not Ramona. She's too good for him. It, it seems so strange that they would have considered that because it's, you know, considering the whole, the way it starts, he's like, he's dating a high school girl. And then to leave it that way, it seems like it's like he would not have gone anywhere. So I'm right, glad they right. changed it. Yeah, me too. But you, you know what's interesting? It was the um, uh, book six, as I understand it, book six of the of the comic uh, graphic novel was actually written after the film was out. Um, I think it was after the film started. It was under production and everything, and and, and yeah, because they sort of took a nod from the uh, from the work that they had done on the script. Well, and they ended up using the end of the comic because he ended up writing it where Scott. And Ramona end up together, and they ended up using that to decide to do reshoots uh, after some test audiences, and and basically have it where he ends up with Ramona. Casting by Robin D. Cook, Jennifer Houston, and Allison Jones. Yeah, uh, between them and uh, Mr. Wright, they really put together an incredible cast that it just seems they were all meant to play the parts they are in here on screen. Uh, starting with Michael Sarah as Scott Pilgrim. He's just um, kind of the perfect geeky kid who would be a, a bass player and also uh, a huge fan of video games and really good at them. And because of that, in his own mind, think that he'd be able to fight as good as he does in those video games. <laughs> yeah. he uh, He's a fascinating guy. I mean, he had come off of a couple of significant uh, films getting into this. And, and so he was kind of a kind of a big deal already, but the thing that he's got going for him is he never really feels like a big deal. Speaking strictly of the music, as it turns out, uh, Bill Pope says of, of Michael on, uh, on bass that he's almost too good, uh, and he is so good we think he had to dumb it down to, to fit in with the band as they learned to play the instruments on these tunes. Uh, I did not even know he played the bass, but apparently he is quite good. Which is really interesting. And it's, you know, I, I love that these, the filmmakers behind this really went all out, getting all of these uh, actors to actually train as a band and learn their instruments so they could actually do the work on screen. And they also had to learn stunts so they could do their own fight scenes. 
And it's, it speaks well to what the filmmakers were trying to achieve here. I mean, Edgar Wright said it was such a, an incredibly complex film because it wasn't just a musical or it wasn't just a comedy or it wasn't just an action film. It was all of them blended together. And, and then you see what they, what they end up doing, especially Michael Sarah when he's, I mean, he's with the band and yeah, he's, he's great with the band. Um, but then flip on the flip side, when he jumps into the fight scenes, he doesn't look like the sort of guy who would be a good fighter, but then you put him out there and it's like, he actually works really well in context of the fight scenes. It's, it's, uh, it's just smart the way that they, they put the time in to train everybody so that they, they fit what they needed to do. And Michael Sarah, uh, you know, gave 110% here. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, too, as Ramona Flowers. Um, she comes in as a very physical actor herself. She's, um, you know, she's a, a dancer and, a, and um, she apparently is uh, quite adept uh, in the fight scenes and also looked it. She does. She uh, she has a great look, and she works really well as Ramona. This this character that is the one who's has these seven evil exes that Scott Pilgrim now has to defeat. Somebody who seems a little broken. Somebody that he is uh, attracted to, um, but she's you know, she's. There's that line that she is is walking, and I, I think that Mary Elizabeth Winstead balances on that line so well as far as. Um, playing the the kind of the broken character who would have you know had these evil exes, but at the same time has that connection with Scott and is working on trying to figure out what she needs to do to make it work. I I, I really enjoyed her in this. Me too. Uh, although I have to say, of everybody in the uh, supporting cast, Kieran Culkin was the greatest surprise to me. As Wallace Wells. <laughs> I really enjoyed him. He is great. He really is so much fun to watch. Not in enough stuff. He, Kieran is one of those uh, guys that I'd love to see in more. Because I think as Wallace, uh, the gay roommate, I think he brings a lot of just honesty and personality and fun to the role. He's he's one of the more grounding uh, characters in the film, even through his sort of sarcasm. I think he's, he's uh, um, the one that... Uh, that allows us to sort of see through some of the artifice, the comic artifice, uh, more often than not. Well, and he's also the one who kind of has the speech for Scott. And, right. you know, he, he's almost like the, uh, the uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi to, uh, to Scott's Luke. And I think that's an important uh, role that he plays in this film. And when he has the little speech for Scott about, you know, if you want something bad, you have to fight for it. You got to step up your game, Scott, break out the L word. Um, that's, that's that moment that Scott needed. He needed that teacher to kind of teach him that and, and help him start opening his eyes. And I, I think Kieran really brought it. Ellen Wong is Knives Chow, the high school girl. She's cute. And I, Knives is a, a great character. And I like that her character takes quite a, uh, uh, quite an arc of her own over the course of it as she starts as the, the little meek high school girl turns into a kind of a, a Ramona wannabe and then she kind of steps into her own as she becomes the fighter at the end and uh, then she's just too good for him it's great I love that <laughs> she's a uh, she she came to the film uh, not a lot of credits but she did bring a green belt in Taekwondo awesome yeah that's one that's one of the things that Edgar Wright apparently liked about her that she looked so sweet uh, and also 
uh, was r- really beginning to grow in, in sort of her strength as a, as a, someone interested in, in fighting. And so uh, that was a good, a good fit. Uh, possibly uh, not a surprise, but somebody I enjoy very, very much, Alison Pill as Kim Pine. Yeah, she she's great. The, I mean, the rest of the the cast, I think they all work so well in their parts. I don't know how much I have to say about each of them individually, but I really love all of them in the roles they have. And and Allison, I, you know, she's just so bitter, like her coffee. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I love her as the drummer. Me too. I you know, I obviously liked her a whole lot in Snowpiercer, uh, which she did just a little while after this, uh, but. I actually kind of discovered, I, I developed my inner monologue relationship with her in the newsroom uh, playing Maggie Jordan, uh, which was, I, I thought, a fantastic show. Um, and so uh, she's just, I, it was canceled way, way too soon. I uh, think Pieces of April is where I discovered her. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that was uh, also. Yeah, just really yeah. always enjoyed her. Uh, so uh, the rest of the of the cast, you're right. Mark Weber, Johnny Simmons, uh, Anna Kendrick, uh, Brie Larson was a, a fantastic yeah, what uh, a treat. antagonist. <laughs> Aubrey Plaza, uh, all great. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, Clifton Collins Jr., Thomas James, The Vegan Police, and Bill Hader as The Voice. K.O. <laughs> so good. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the League of Evil Exes. Uh, we've got we've got seven more names to 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 ramble off. Do you want to do that? We have Satya Baba as Matthew Patel, Chris Evans as Lucas Lee, Brandon Routh as Todd Ingram, Mae Whitman as Roxy Riker, and uh, Shoda and Kida Saito as Kyle and Ken Katayanagi, and the Katayanagi twins, and of course Jason Schwartzman as Gideon Gordon Graves. It was it was great. It was such a, a so cool to see uh, Brandon Routh in here. I like him a lot. Chris Evans, of course, was a nice surprise. Uh, everybody was uh, wonderful. I, I love when it comes to the League of Evil Exes. Um, one, the fact that there is a League of Evil Exes is hilarious. Yeah. But I love the um, the just the production design and the costume design and everything that went into um, the way all of these guys looked. And also the way that they integrated their number into kind of everything within each of their scenes. So when Matthew Patel is there, you know, there are a lot of ones. And then when Chris Evans as Lucas Lee is there, there's twos everywhere. And Brandon Routh is the threes, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's just a really kind of fun way to, to continue the, the, um, the way that this is kind of its own little video game. And you've got these different levels. Absolutely. Um, and and of course that uh, a hardcore vegan uh, as is telekinetic <laughs> and all powerful. <laughs> oh, so good. Uh, let's talk a little bit about getting it made. Oni Press, who released the graphic novel after the first no- uh, first one came out in two thousand four, they contacted producer Mark Platt, who um, thought it would be an interesting thing to make. They um, uh, Edgar Wright had just released Shaun of the Dead, and they thought he would be a good person to do this. They they got him on board, they got uh, Bacall on board to write it, and then they started working on it. Um, but it took so long, and Edgar Wright uh, went off to do Hot Fuzz, and there was a writer's strike, and all sorts of things kind of going on. Uh, and not to mention the fact that uh, O'Malley was still trying to finish writing all of the different volumes, um, that it took until 2008 for them to start casting and finally start filming it in 2009. 
Um, so it was definitely kind of a, a slow burn getting the thing off the ground, but um, but it ended up working. I, it didn't sound like really there were any issues trying to get it made. It just it just ended up taking time to find the story. Cinematography by Bill Pope. Uh, I I have to say, and I'm sure you saw this in the behind the scenes stuff too. This camera team practically needed stunt people. Oh, they're so good. Did you see how they were throwing people around on these rope rigs? I didn't see them throwing the camera people around, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you watch the film. When you have this much stuff going on in a film, it's clear that there needs to be a lot of technical prowess to make sure stuff goes uh, fluidly and without people getting hurt. There is a sequence over where the, the camera is rotating around. It's that typical sort of hero rotator around, uh, I think, Brandon Routh. Routh. And it, it wasn't, there wasn't a camera on a rig. It was the operator on like a trapeze that held the camera and he was holding it and they were swinging him around on this trapeze in decreasing circles in shrinking wow. circles around the thing it is uh it was great it was absolutely great why build a rig when you can just put a guy on a rope <laughs> i want to see that at the next Cirque du Soleil show. yes more cameras <laughs> on ropes with actual people there uh, the production designed by Marcus Rowland, uh, art direction, Nigel Churcher, set decoration, Odetta Stoddard. Uh, I, I really love the choices they made to try to match the anime look where it's appropriate. The, the comic style is, is really interesting. It's got anime touches. It's not an anime uh, sort of manga. Um, it, it is, it's very unique uh, in terms of look and the feel of it. And I think they made just the right choices, um, you know, to my eye to to set the tone. Not to mention that, but when you look at the locations, I mean, filming this in Toronto, which producer, uh, one of the producers says, it's the biggest movie ever identifiably set in Toronto. Um, a lot of it because O'Malley grew up there or you know wrote this after living there and um, really kind of tied so many of the images to specifics in Toronto. And the, uh, the production design team really went, uh, you know, all out to make sure they were making things look right to the point where there was a bar. I can't remember which of the the bars it is. I think it's the rocket where uh, one of the extras went into the, the bathroom uh, where he, uh, where Scott goes and and pees and uh, thought it was a real bathroom and was using it because it just, (laughs) it seemed like the real bar and, and, you know, people who had gone to the real bar and then had gone to this, you almost couldn't tell the difference. The uh, I, I didn't see uh, um, Stacy Pilgrim. It's actually uh, Brian's sister. Uh, the character who based uh, the character Stacy is based on was actually uh, she worked at the Second Cup Coffee Shop in in uh, Toronto and and uh, got to know Anna Kendrick and Kendrick wears her actual um, uh, coffee name tag in the film and and uh, she was supposed to be in the coffee shop i don't think she ever made yeah. it in the no she shop. is she's sitting down at is a she? table when he, when he comes in to talk to his sister but aubrey plaza is there instead um and that's one of those moments where there's a great little sound cue where it's like as soon as as he passes by her um there's like a little mac a mac book oh, opening yeah, sound the bong yeah yeah as as uh, as she pops on screen it's too funny stunts by brad allen yeah, the stunt coordinator, uh, you know, this was a film with a lot of stunts. I mean, there's a lot of digital work all through it, but Brad Allen and his team of uh, stunt people 
did an amazing job of training the actors to do a lot of their own stunts, but also, you know, with the real stunt people just doing some incredible stunts. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's spectacular to watch how all of it is so well integrated into the story. And it's, uh, it's uh, kind of a tour de force of amazing stunts, stunt work. A lot of which I think, you know, Edgar Wright is such a fan of some of these kind of old uh, kung fu movies and everything. I think he really got excited about the opportunity to do this story where these, you know, seven major battles happen and uh, had a lot of fun coming up with what these guys were doing. So kudos to Brad Allen and his team. Uh, Jonathan Amos and Paul Machlis had an equally challenging road ahead editing the film. Yeah, uh, to say the least. I mean, with everything going on already, not to mention the integration of all the digital elements and the animation and everything that they were putting into it. It's it's a lot of work. And to keep it, you know, at a breezy pace where you don't feel you're burdened by having to watch these seven fights. And it's so funny because when the when the Nega uh, when the Nega Scott appears at the end, I mm-hmm. actually rolled my eyes and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot there was one more fight. <laughs> and then they played that so well. I'm like, that was really smart the way they did that because I was like, oh, there's more. But then they, they did that on purpose to get that reaction, which is I thought was pretty clever. Again, super smart use of the frame for visual humor. That's something you wouldn't get by listening to it. Exactly. Uh, that was such a great move, having them <laughs> become friends. Uh, sound designer, uh, credit to James Boyle, re-recording mixers, Chris Burden, and Doug Cooper. Uh, we've already talked about uh, the use of sound. It's top-notch. Absolutely top-notch. Yeah, I don't have anything else to say other than it's just, I, I think this is one of my favorite um, just uses of sound in the film because of the way that Wright and, and these guys play with it to just build this world. Now, the music, uh, you're not as crazy about the music for your uh, meditation time. No, I'd rather listen to Kundun for that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Nigel Godrich, who did the score, I mean, it works in context of the film. And I think to that end, I give him major credit because he did exactly what the film needed to do. He did. Uh, the The tracks, at least the tracks uh, of Sex Babam, were written by uh, Beck. Uh, which I feel like I could tell. <laughs> they sound like Beck tunes, and um, Metric wrote uh, Clash at Demonhead's song. Um, ton of collaboration, and if you look at the uh, the number of sort of releases of Scott Pilgrim music, it, it very much uh, becomes almost operatic, uh, the, the sort of size of inspired by music uh, from this film. And tapping into a lot of uh, local Toronto bands, which I yeah. think uh, speaks uh, well to how much um, Wright and team wanted to kind of integrate that real sense of this community into the film. If not a best picture or best director or uh, best screenplay nomination, certainly this got a best editing nomination, best cinematography nomination. Those That would be my bet. How to do an award season. Uh, this film uh, certainly got a lot of um, uh, recognition in the award circles, but I don't know if it's stuff that you would typically say, oh, yes, you know, it's going to be uh, winning for that. But yes, it did get nominated for um, for things like the best fantasy film, best editing. Um, I don't know about cinematography. Nope, I don't see any cinematography nominations well, that's disappointing. on the list. But 
uh, it still ended up getting um, 17 wins along with 62 other nominations. Um, the one I wanted to point out, though, are the Golden Schmoes Awards, which are the, the awards <laughs> that uh, JoeBlow.com uh, gives out every year. And uh, they, it was actually uh, nominated for 11 Golden Schmoes, took home four. It won for Best Music in a Movie, Most Underrated Movie of the Year, Best Comedy of the Year, and Biggest Surprise of the Year. I would say all of those are true. All of those are true. The KOs, this is where it uh, did not end up winning. Um, it, it lost to Inception for Favorite Movie of the Year. Also lost to Christopher Nolan for Best Director of the Year. Trippiest Movie of the Year also went to Inception. Best Special Effects of the Year also went to Inception. And Favorite Movie Poster of the Year also went to Inception. Then there was Best DVD slash Blu-ray of the Year. That went to the Back to the Future trilogy. And Best TNA of the Year. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead <laughs> oh, can count God. that on, of her <laughs> wonderful awards she's been nominated for. But she lost. Uh, it went to Piranha 3D, uh, Kelly Brooks' performance in that film. Oh, for crying out loud. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Thank you, JoeBlow.com. Anything else on your list? You know, just one little note that I think uh, also speaks to Edgar Wright and his uh, understanding of the uh, the mentality of the people um, that are being portrayed here in the film. Um, in the dream sequence in the film, there is some music from the game Legend of Zelda that, uh, that he uses. And Edgar Wright was apparently so uh, determined to get that music into the film that he actually sent a clip of the film um, with a letter that he wrote to Nintendo um, and he said that the music is like nursery rhymes to our generation. And uh, and I guess it worked. So he was able to get that music that's to play brilliant. in the dream sequence. I think that's uh, that's very uh, clever. And it's fun hearing that music. And it just it speaks to his understanding of this film he was making. Oh, it totally does. That is brilliant. How did it do? Did, did all of this work, all of this attention pay off at all at the box office? Uh, well, Edgar Wright's comic book adaptation cost Universal $85 million, plus an additional $5 million thrown in uh, by Relativity Media for a total budget of $90 million, or $99 million in today's dollars. They did receive some tax incentives, which effectively brought that budget total down to $60 million, or $66 million today. After its premiere at Comic-Con, then Fantasia Fest, the movie was uh, released August 13, 2010, opposite Eat, Pray, Love and The Expendables. It never found its audience, unfortunately, and it only ended up making $31.6 million domestically and $16.5 million internationally, giving it a total of $48 million or $52.8 million in today's dollars. This left the movie at an adjusted loss per finished minute of $117,300. Ay, ay, ay. But, uh, you know, Baby Driver's coming out uh, soon, so hopefully it will do well in proving that Wright can succeed without his Cornetto Trilogy collaborator, Simon Pegg. I am going to see Baby Driver nine times in the theaters. <laughs> Just to make sure. I have to do my part, and I'm going <laughs> to, yes, this is <laughs> clear. Edgar Wright, thanks, you too. Yes, as he should. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Edgar. Andy, oh. I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, or you can swipe over in your show notes and you can just tap on flickchart. And that'll take you right over to Scott Pilgrim versus the world in flickchart. You can add it to your list. Let's see how it stacks up to our list. Andy, I have to tell you, it did fairly well on my list. <laughs> well, we shall see, Pete. First up, we have Scott Pilgrim versus the world versus Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This is going to get really annoying with all the verses. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say Scott Pilgrim versus the world. 
Yes, Scott Pilgrim. Oh, thank goodness. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that because that's okay. going to get rid That's going to get old. Yeah, that's going to get old. All right, next up, Scott Pilgrim versus the world or more Coen brothers, uh, Fargo. Scott Pilgrim, please. Boy, I don't know, man. It's Fargo, but I'm going to say Scott Pilgrim. I knew you would. I didn't even have to say anything. I know. Scott Pilgrim versus the world versus aliens. Ah, oh, crap. Aliens. Yeah, I have to go aliens. Sorry, Scott. Scott Pilgrim or the good, the bad, and the ugly. Scott Pilgrim. Can you imagine if that was a versus? Scott Pilgrim versus the world versus the good, good versus, versus the bad the versus, versus the ugly. The ugly. <laughs> uh, you said, sorry, Scott Pilgrim? Yes, sir. I, oh boy, really. I, uh, this is a really close battle for me. I'm going to say good, bad, and the ugly, though. That's heartbreaking. Uh, I know. Hmm. All right. Well, let's do it, traitor. <laughs> okay. Ready? One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Oh, there you right go. Out of the gate. There you go. Let's see. And I'm okay with that, but I don't have any guilt now. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Pilgrim versus the world or The Innocents. Oh, I love that movie, but I'm still going to go with Scott, Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim, yes, you are. Yeah. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Ooh, or the Fisher King. Still uh, interesting tonally. I I see some parallels there, but I I really really enjoyed this movie, Andy. I hear you. I hear you. I'm going to say the Fisher King though. I'm Scott Pilgrim. All right, ready? Mhm. 1 2, two three, 3 Rock, rock. Paper. paper Rock, rock. Scissors paper. <laughs> well, that's fun. It gets gets really intense. <laughs> it is. It's good. Okay, uh, Scott Pilgrim or One Hundred One Dalmatians. Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim, indeed. So that leaves it at uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World is at number forty out of three hundred nine movies. I'd say that's a pretty good slot. It's a five star like for me over on Letterbox.com slash the next reel. Absolutely five star like for me as well. I'd say it's a five-star love if I could get it. I would do it. I would love it. I would love this movie. God, I would love it so hard. (laughs) Didn't want to know that. Thank (laughs) you for sharing. (laughs) Uh, Where do we go from here, Andy? Uh, Well, you know, it's summer vacation. Uh, You and I are going to be taking the month of July off to hit the beaches. See you, suckers! (laughs) Okay, not really. But we are taking, if you can believe it, Pete, this is our first hiatus on the show since we started back in uh, November uh, 2011. Wow. It's crazy that this is our first break. This is like kind of kind of ridiculous. Uh, but we are hoping <laughs> that uh, this month will give us a chance to catch up on some much needed polishing up of the show behind the curtains. Um, we will be back though for our July film board to discuss Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, and then return with the regular show the first week of August, where we'll be kicking off our longest continuous series yet, the Star Trek Anthology. Oh, Holy cow! Wow. Yes, indeed. Is that a is that a kind of a bucket list thing for us? Is that how you'd categorize this? I guess so. I mean, I, I never thought of it that way, but once once the topic of Star Trek came up, it I think it instantly became something that was like we have to do that. Yeah, and you, but for me, it's always this. It's always this question of you know I, I talk about the show and people I talk about it with always say what did you think of the you know star trek whatever the last usually the latest star trek is well we haven't done that 
you haven't done any Star Trek? So I feel like it's a series we we should have had done already. And so we're just kind of clean, sweeping it up. This will feel really good to be finished with. It's going to be long. And we're going to love it. Don't get me wrong. But it'll be long. It's going to be fun. I'm so. actually looking forward to it. I haven't gone through watching the films um, like in a, in a series like this uh, since, we, since you and I in college watched, I think it was like one through five, was it? When the sixth one came out or was it yeah. when Generations came out? Oh, I'm, I, actually, I'm sure it was Generations. It had to be yeah, it, pro- it was probably right? Generations. We did a, a marathon and we watched all the films leading up to it. And that was the first time that I've ever seen the first one. So um, this will be the second time that I will have seen the first one. Really? I yeah, don't think I remembered that. Go figure. Yeah, it was Star Trek because Generations came out in 94. So yeah, that would be, uh, that would be it. it. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I I really am looking forward to it. I have gone through all of them fairly recently. Just at the end of last year, we did our we did a thirteen week family movie night uh, marathon of all of them, and so I introduced them to my kids, except the first one, uh, because (laughs) I actually wanted them to continue watching, and I knew that if they tried to get into the first one, they wouldn't keep up with the second. So uh, it it went over very very well. So I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it again, and and. um, even Nemesis, even Generations. <laughs> I'm there. In the middle is tough. There's some. There's some transitional. There's some, there movies are some that spots. Are hard. There are some spots. Yes. <laughs> well, between now and then, Andy, pretty much for the month of July, I gotta go to bed. All right. Well, bye, and stuff. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And we love this movie, so we went straight to the bottom. We've got some... I assume yours is a one star. It is a one star, yes, indeed. Do you? Uh, would you like to do the honors, sir? Yes. Uh, uh, reality Check says, What the... Uh, was this actually a movie? I don't drink or take drugs, but that might be the only way to appreciate this movie. Sanity called and wants my TV back. I am very frightful of the future due to the positive reviews this movie has received. If I feel dumber for having watched this thing, what about those who don't even realize they are dumber from having watched it? (laughs) I will admit that it wasn't the dumbest as there were a few entertaining points to it. But overall, I was stunned at the presumably acid-induced idiocy. That is awesome. (laughs) You know, I will say, as much as we are praising this movie, I do feel that there is a good contingency of people out there who probably are going to feel this way. <laughs> yeah. No, I believe it. Like, I feel like there is definitely an audience for this, and there's definitely an audience of people who should not ever watch this. Well, and you know what? I mean, that's really the recommendation, right? Is that you're going to watch the movie, watch it with an intention of trying to understand what the filmmakers are doing, what the cinematographer is doing, what Edgar Wright is doing. Um, because if you just watch it for the surface, like comedy of it, I can totally see how you would think it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I get it. I didn't, but I get it. It's like watching Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, this uh, this review, in fact, uh, it sort of uh, spins off of yours. It is titled Me, 
versus Scott Pilgrim versus The World from October 2nd, 2016. Greg writes, I, I just don't get this. I was supposed to like this based on what I heard from people, but I just found it completely annoying. Uh, then I remembered I hate Michael Sarah, and that probably had something to do with it. <laughs> and you, you'll be glad to know that two people found this review helpful. Oh, that is good to know. Mm-hmm. That is good to know. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.